We're thankful to be here together and gather around God's Word this morning. If you have your copy of God's Word or if you want to power that on and look at uh, your Bible app, then I encourage you to get over to Genesis chapter 10, excuse me, chapter 11. But we'll be looking at Genesis 10 through 11 as this kind of summarizes and, and concludes our first half as we have found ourselves in session six of our 12-week look at the book of Genesis. And now you might be saying to yourself, we're not halfway through a book that has 50 chapters. So how could we be at the halfway point? Well, you know, um, mathematically, chapter 11 or that, that turn from chapter 11 to chapter 12 might not be the halfway point. But thematically, It is the halfway point of the book of Genesis, and I'll explain that here in a little bit. But we've seen so far the the work of God and and the the providence of God, the power of God. We've looked at the different titles that Moses uses to refer to God and Elohim and, and Yahweh and how those, and then also Yahweh Elohim. And we've looked at the combination of the two and seen what Moses is communicating to the people through using the different uh, titles of the Lord here. And we've seen God's working and purposing and planning in all the events from creation to the fall to then the, the rise of evil and the, and the rise of evil in the land. We saw there in Genesis 6 and uh, then we saw him preserve for himself a remnant in the person of Noah and his family. And we've seen God remain faithful and show grace time and time again. So now this morning we find ourselves in Genesis chapter 11, uh, and, and it's commonly split, Genesis is, into two parts. This is what I was referred to just a while ago, when considering uh, and looking at the scope of its narrative. See, the first part of Genesis is called and referred to as the primeval narratives. So that is, uh, before the Lord then begins purposing himself a people in Abram, or as we come to know him, Abraham. And so then the second part of Genesis is called the patriarchal narratives. And that details the rise of Abram and Abraham and the people of Israel and everything leading up to the book of Exodus. So the first part, the primeval narrative, is comprised of chapters 1 through 11, which we're completing this morning. And the second part is comprised of chapters 12 through 50. I mean, that makes sense, right? So just uh, all the way through the end of the book. So this morning we're tackling these final two chapters. Now from these two chapters, the story which stands out, the story which our children sang uh, and kind of explained for us a while ago, and which is of wide renown, is that of the Tower of Babel. However, before we get to the Tower of Babel, I want us to see the hidden treasure which God often has stored for us in those passages of Scripture which we often overlook. The only reason I characterize it as hidden treasures because of that exact fact that we overlook these portions of God's Word. With that being said, let's go ahead. We'll read the portion of the Tower of Babel, and then we're going to backtrack a little bit. So we're going to read the most popular portion of this part of the text, and then we'll backtrack a little bit. So I'll invite you to go ahead and stand in honor of the reading of God's Word once again. And again, we do this to remind ourselves that God's Word is the purpose for which we are here, to hear from Him through His Word. In Genesis chapter 11, starting in verse 1. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. 
And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down there and confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel. Because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the truths of your word. We thank you for the truths of your word which transcend time, because it is your word which you have given us. So God, as we read your word this morning, we ask that you pierce our hearts, convict us, challenge us where necessary, that if there be anyone here that does not have a relationship with you, that you would open the eyes of their heart and take their heart of stone, give them a heart of flesh, draw them to yourself through the reading and the study of your word. And then help us leave this place not the same, but eager to live these truths out as living worship to you. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated this morning. So, as I said, this is undoubtedly one of the most famous or infamous stories in all of the Bible. I mean, that's, it's, it's full of intrigue as it leaves many things up to the imagination. It's one of those stories from the Bible which you could even ask non-believers about and they would be able to retell you some of its details. And we can only imagine, as we think about it, we look at this story, we can only imagine what it would look like to be on the job site. One minute, you and your brother are having a conversation, working along, and then the next, boom, you can't understand a word each other is saying. And so this story fascinates us. And it is, as I said, it's one of those that we teach in Sunday school. And so it's ingrained in us from the beginning. And it's one of those that's easy to remember because of the things that take place. As we look at it, language is a fascinating thing. I mean, just consider the song our children sang for us a while ago as they recounted many of the ways to say hello in many different languages. And that element alone is perhaps what intrigues us about this story. See, the Lord has truly blessed me with many opportunities to travel abroad, both on mission and just for study. And I, I can recount many moments while on a mission trip in Peru or while on a study trip in Greece, feeling so small, not knowing the language that's being spoken all around me and just how that makes you feel. And in fact, I wanted to recount one story for you as an example of this on one of my trips to Peru, which I was, uh, we, on our trips, we would work with Buckner International. And Buckner International has set up different, uh, what they call family hope centers in these outskirts of Lima, Peru. Lima is a city of roughly 9 million people. And many of those find themselves living in 
favela and, and shanty type towns on the outskirts of the city as they fled the northern highlands over the years uh, over different, for different reasons or coming to the city to look for more prosperity, better opportunity. And they set up, make homes and fashion themselves homes out of whatever they can find. And so the areas closer to town are more well-developed and built. And then the areas farther out are a little poorer. And so on one of these trips, the, the way the trip are typically uh, fashioned is in the morning times, we'd go to individual houses and we would help them. We would work at their house as a means for helping uh, build relationship with the family as an ability to share the gospel. As why are you here? Why are you being so kind and generous and, and helping us build our house? And we'd use that to begin having conversations with them about what it looked like and what brought us there and who it was that had brought us there and that the very God that had brought us there was the God that they could have a relationship with. And so on one of these trips in the afternoons, we would have vacation Bible school for children and we'd have Bible uh, classes for the moms as the dads typically worked all day. And one of these trips, I was preparing to lead a group of students and our trip leader, Julie, who I, I provided a picture of Julie right here. This is my friend, Juliana Mendoza. She, a uh, sweet, sweet lady, uh, has such an incredible testimony of God's grace uh, and, in fact, of God's irresistible grace. As she did not want to be saved, but the Lord drew her to himself. And uh, it's just a beautiful testimony. And she loves the Lord and is the, the spiritual leader there at one of these Family Hope Centers. And when Julie tells you to do something, you do it. It's just, that's just the type of person, that's the type of personality she is. She's the leader when we're there. And so she said she knew that I had some familiarity working with wood and whatnot. I think maybe I had embellished upon my abilities or something. I don't know. But she decided that I needed to go with her to the market to help purchase all the materials that we needed for the rest of the week to work on the homes. And so I agreed to go with her. And we go to the market, and we're, it's like a scene from a movie, what you would expect. There's shops lining the street, and there's people everywhere. There's booths set up with people selling. There's just raw fish laying out and, and chickens being hung up. And then there's all this stuff just happening around you, bustling, just people everywhere. At a moment after we had all purchased the, the minivan that we were riding in, as I was thinking about that on the way down there, how are we getting this stuff back up the hill uh, when we're in a minivan. Well, you can see how we got the stuff back up the hill as the person crouched down underneath several sheets of one-eighth inch plywood is me. Uh, so that's your pastor right there. And then there is several uh, pieces of two by two and two by four type lumber that uh, was not very straight that was lining the middle of the van and then strapped to the top of the minivan is a bunch of aluminum um, roofing type material that we would use to help replace some of their roof. And so that is what we did. And so in this moment, the purpose for me telling the story is I, there was a moment while everything was being loaded on the van when I just kind of stood there and was looking around. And there wasn't many moments when we got to kind of venture out because Julie is very much a mother hen type personality and she would not let us go out on our own at, by any means. But in this moment, you know, she's talking to... Uh, the shop owner, and I'm just kind of standing there looking around. And I realized, like, if I got left here, like, how, how easy would it be for me to be able to find my way back? I know a little bit of Spanish, just enough to get myself in trouble. And so I realized just it was, I was just fascinated. It made me feel so small 
in that moment, to realize that I had zero way of communicating or being able to help myself if I needed to, and just how dependent I was on Julie and our other translators. And so you can go back to the title. Oh, you've already done it. Okay, thank you. So they don't need to see me crouched under plywood much longer. All right, so I tell this story because before we really dive into the detail of the Tower of Babel, this is what we see in the Tower of Babel. This is what we feel, we understand. This is one of the things that fascinates us about this story. But before we dive further into the Tower of Babel story, as I said, I want us to backtrack a little bit. I want us to consider it within the full context of this final section of the primeval narratives, of this final two chapters. And so I want you to backtrack a little bit to chapter 10 and verse 1. And there you'll see why I mentioned that these are some of the the passages that we often skip over or don't think about as bearing much fruit for us. These are the generations of the sons of Noah. Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Sons were born to them after the flood. So, genealogies. They're often off-putting. They're hard to read. They're seemingly innocuous. And we tend to think that they don't provide any value for us when it comes to reading the Bible. So the moment we read a begat or a son of or a generations of, we tend to automatically skip until we see words that we understand. (laughs) However, I want us to see this morning that there is often value in reading and seeking to better understand the genealogies which God has provided us in his word. Because they tell us a story of what God has done. They weave within them the thread of God's providence. Again, we have to remember to ask ourselves, why did Moses include this? Well, he's pointing the people to God. He's pointing them to the God, to the truth, the people of God, to the truth that all people derive their beginning from God. So, as they're reading this, they're gaining a greater understanding of the geopolitical world around them, as well as they're continuing to be rooted in the idea that it is God who created them. It is God who called them, and it is telling them and is setting them, it is God who set them apart to make his name known among the nations. And it's telling them who the nations came from, by his grace and for his glory. Do we see this as, we, as a continued theme throughout all of Scripture? That time and again, the biblical authors want their readers to know and to remember and to stand in awe that God is the creator and the sustainer and the author of life. Maybe you'll remember back to our time in the book of Malachi, back in the fall. The fall as in the season, not back in Genesis 3. But anyway, so in Malachi chapter 2, verse 10, we read this. Have we not all one Father? Has not God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? As I said, this is a theme throughout the Bible, not just in the Old Testament, but the New Testament as well. Consider these words from Paul to the gathered assembly of the Areopagus in Acts 17, where Paul says this, The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, 
since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as some of even your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. That's from Acts 17, verse 24 through 28. Pastor and commentator, uh, commentary author Kent Hughes puts it this way, all people are united to one another, both by their ancestry and by their responsibility to their creator, God. In other words, the truth that we see from the opening pages of Genesis on throughout all of Scripture is that we are all created by God and for God. You've heard me use this phrase time and again. We are all created in the image of God and for the glory of God. Therefore, we are each responsible to God for bringing Him glory. And since we have all failed in that respect and sought to bring glory to ourselves, we are separated from God in our fallen sinfulness. However, this fallen sinfulness not only separates us from God, it divides our relationship to one another. And that's what's alive. And that's what's made evident here, continually evident here in Genesis 11, 10 and 11. So to narrate these divisions and separations, we have genealogies. However, these genealogies also help us to look all the way back to the beginning. And indeed, that is the main point for us to see God's faithfulness and his providence going all the way back to the beginning of time. See, our first point this morning is that Genesis lays the foundation for our understanding of God's providence. That is that God's purposing and planning of all things according to his glory is what is revealed here. When we look at the genealogies of Scripture, we must realize that they are given to us for a purpose. And that purpose is for us to see how God's ultimate plans and purposes unfolded by His grace through sinful humanity. You see, by carefully looking at the genealogies of Scripture, we can get a look at the scope of God's redemptive purpose, His redemptive purposes and plans played throughout history. But what gives an even greater understanding and greater appreciation for this is knowing that this was God's design and plan from the beginning. You see, genealogies help us to see and remember that God is faithful to fulfill his promises and accomplish his purposes. As we look at the genealogy here of Genesis 10, we are challenged to remember God's faithfulness in promising Eve that one would come from her line that would crush the head of the serpent. Even though he looked at the earth and saw nothing but wickedness, as we saw in Genesis 6, nothing but wickedness in the heart of men, yet he was faithful to preserve a remnant by grace through faith in the life of Noah and his family. And from his family, we read, if you see there in verse 5 of chapter 10, from these the coastland people spread in their lands, each with his own language by their clans in their nations. So as they list the sons of Japheth and the sons of Japhon, 
we continue reading here in this genealogy, we see the sons of Noah, the grandsons of Noah, and how their people spread. So as these people spread, we see that some are strong, some are mighty, and therefore trusted in their own strength and in their own intellect rather than trusting in God. You see there as we keep pick up back up in verse 6 of chapter 10. The sons of Ham, Cush, Egypt, Put, and Canaan, and the sons of Cush, Seba, Havilah, Sabta, Ramah, Sabtika, the sons of Ramah, Sheba, and Dadan, Cush, father Nimrod. He was the first on earth to be a mighty man. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erech, Akkad, and Kalne, the land of Shinar. So we see the beginning of Babel finds its roots in one of the descendants of Noah. And it was the mighty man, Nimrod, who was strong. And his, his ancestors then were strong. So in looking at the spread of these families and these people, we gain not just a better understanding of how the geopolitical status of the region came to be for the majority of them. We also see a continued and steady movement away from the Lord. So it's another purpose in which Moses lists these peoples. And we skip to verse 15 there. Canaan, or Canaan, fathered Sidon, his firstborn, and Heth. And the Jebusites, the Amorites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, the Archites, the Sinites, the Arvadites, the Zimorites, and the Hamathites. Afterwards, the clans of the Canaanites dispersed. And the territory of the Canaanites extended from Sidon in the direction of Gerar as far as Gaza in the direction of Sodom, Gomorrah, Adma, and Zeboim as far as Lashah. These are the sons of Ham by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. So as we read there, we see some that sound very familiar because we have the ability of the lens of the entire Bible. But these would have been undoubtedly familiar names to the Israelites as they're hearing names of the peoples that surround them. They're hearing names like Sodom and Gomorrah. They're hearing names like Canaan. They're hearing all of these things and they're realizing this drift away from the Lord. Because we knew of Noah's righteousness and his faith, and then we saw his sinfulness last week, and now we see that his sinfulness is alive and well in the hearts of his children. And so we see this steady drift away from God as we read these names. And we look at the entire Bible, we know that these are all cities which Israel inevitably has to go against, or these are peoples that Israel has to go against for their great idolatry and wickedness. Or cities which the Lord sends prophets to, declares judgment, such as Babel and Nineveh and the Jebusites, Amorites, Girgashites, Canaanites, all these peoples and all these nations. Then we get to verse 21. And as we look at the descendants of Shem, the one who Noah blessed, if you remember from last week, in the aftermath of his own sinful reckoning, we see a different story. We see a story of God's grace and favor and provision. Picking back up in verse 21 of chapter 10. To Shem also, the father of all the children of Eber, the elder brother of Japheth, children were born. The sons of Shem, Elam, Asher, Arpachshad, Lud, and Aram. The sons of Aram, 
Uz, Hol, Gether, and Mosh. We see all of these peoples. We see all of these names. We see Shem is provided for. But all of these also find their roots going all the way back to God's blessing of Shem through Noah. So as we see the breakdown of their families, their spread and their position in the landscape, so Moses is writing this for the Israelites. Not only are they learning about who they are and who God is and who they are in light of who God is, but they're also seeing God's provision and providence in light of preserving Adam and Eve in the midst of their sin. And then they're seeing and hearing about uh, God giving this promise to Eve to crush the head of the serpent through the offspring of the woman. They're seeing that God judging the sinfulness of the earth preserved Noah and his family. And now they know why God has preserved and chosen and saved them from the hand of Pharaoh. Because as they look back and they see these nations around them and they know that they are not descended from the one whom was blessed. But through Shem comes them. And we get to that as we look further on into the genealogy. So as we reach the end of chapter 10 and the final son of Noah is listed is Shem, the one who Noah blessed. And after his immediate descendants are listed, we read, pick back up in verse 31 of chapter 10. We see this. These are the sons of Shem by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. These are the clans of the sons of Noah according to their genealogies in their nations. And from these, the nations spread abroad on the earth after the flood. So this brings us right up to the point where we begin the story of the Tower of Babel, as we read earlier. Now, this is without a doubt, as, I, as I've said multiple times now, one of the most iconic stories in all the Bible. And as I stated at the beginning, these believers and non-believers alike can recount the plot. However, if you'll look, you'll notice that it is only nine verses long. We only read nine verses earlier when we read the story of the Tower of Babel. So why does a story which is only nine verses long become one of the most iconic stories from all the Bible? Because the truth at the heart of the story resonates throughout history. The story of Babel is the story of us. It's the story of the sinfulness of the human heart and how our ambitions and our goals and our desires naturally pit us against God's good and perfect design. And it's the story of man's continued slide away from God toward self-exaltation. And that's what we see is then we pick back up. Now, reading all of these descendants and seeing all this, we pick up in verse 1 of chapter 11. Now, the whole earth had one language and the same words. Now, wait a second. Herein lies the other reason I wanted us to look closely at the genealogy of chapter 10 before diving into the story of the tower because this is intentionally the way in which Moses wrote it. I mean, what did we read there at the end of verse 32? These are the clans, the sons of Noah, according to their genealogies, in their nations, and from these the nations spread abroad on the earth after the flood. And even in verse 31, we see their languages plural. Well, then we pick back up in verse 1 of chapter 11, and we see the whole earth had one language and the same words. So what's going on here? Well, as I said, Moses wrote it this way purposefully. How can, he, he described for us 
In chapter 10, a scene in which the family line of Noah is spread throughout the world, different nations, clans, and languages. And yet here in verse 1 of chapter 11, we have described for us a scene which is quite the opposite. Because we have one language described, but as we keep reading, they're described as being all together. Verse 2 of chapter 11. As, a, as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. So they're all together and have one language, yet in chapter 10, we see these multiple different clans and different peoples and different languages described. What's going on here? Is this a discrepancy? Not at all. Moses wrote it this way on purpose because it points out God's design and plans and purposes. He gives us the result of the Tower of Babel before we read the actual story. See, Moses constructs this not in chronological order, but in a thematic way. That is, that Moses tells us the outcome of the story before he tells us the story, so as to highlight the absurd depravity of the human heart, to think that we could actually take any sort of power or control into our own hands. So Moses says, these are the line of Noah, and this is how they came to be spread out, and this is why. So that is what is described for us here in in chapter 10 and chapter 11. So then we pick back up in the story of the Tower of Babel. We see that Genesis repeatedly highlights the depravity of the human heart. Genesis repeatedly highlights for us the depravity of the human heart. See, the Israelites reading this on the plains of the desert would have read this story as a warning against sin and a warning against God's judgment of sin. Because now they're seeing how all the pagan nations around them came to be. And they know that God has spoken directly to them to preserve them as the ones who will worship him. So in reading this, Moses wants them to be in awe of God's grace on them in their lives, of calling them out. That they, and he wants them to see God's good design and plan and purpose from the beginning, that they are from the line of Shem, the one who God blessed through Noah. So they're gaining a greater understanding, not just of the area in which they find themselves and the other peoples, but they're gaining a greater understanding of who God has called them to be and a greater understanding of God's grace. You see, we cannot rightly understand the love of God apart from the justice and the wrath of God. Because God loves us so much, he does not want to see us handed over to sin. And because that separates us from him. So what does he do? He gives us his word as a guide and as a protector. But because of our sinfulness, we rebel time and again. We take things into our own hands. So God must judge sin because he can have no part in sin. So we see him throughout Scripture warning of his judgment time and again. And why does he warn? For the purpose of seeing his people respond in repentance. And this is also evident in a key detail that right here is used for only the second time in the book of Genesis. That is that the people here at the beginning of chapter 11, they're described as having come from the east. When Adam and Eve were removed from the garden, the Lord set cherubim to guard the east gate. When Cain was cursed because of his sin, we read 
in chapter 4 of Genesis, then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod east of Eden. In a couple of weeks, we'll read as Lot departs from Abraham. We're told that he does so heading eastward. This is a riding element which Moses is using to illustrate one's separation or drift from God, which is yet another thing which Genesis repeatedly highlights for us is that the ongoing, is that ongoing separation caused by sin. Because of the sinful condition of the human heart, mankind and God are only drifting farther apart. As we've discussed extensively the last two weeks, though, God is immutable. He does not change. He is the same today, yesterday, and forever. So therefore, his standard for what is right and good and true does not change. So any shifting, any movement that takes place, any compromise that takes place that separates us and God takes place on our behalf. It takes place in our hearts. So anything that we can do in and of ourselves does not and cannot bring us closer to God. If ever we find ourselves in a situation which we feel that God is distant, not present or far away, it is because we have shifted, not Him. So when we discipline ourselves to walk in His ways, live according to His commandments, and in repentance throw ourselves at His mercy and grace for those times when we fail, then he will always seem like a close friend. But when we pursue our ways, follow our own dark path, and build towers for ourselves, we'll look up to see how far we've drifted away from God. And that is what the story of Tower of Babel is detailing for us. us. Pick back up in verse 3 of chapter 11. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. So Moses is detailing the advancement of civilization and and knowledge. And again, this is from Nimrod who had power and intellect. He was a powerful man. In verse 4, then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. See what the story of the Tower of Babel highlights explicitly for us is that sin is sets no limit on self-worship. Sin sets no limit on self-worship because that is what is taking place here as the descendants of Nimrod, descendant of Noah, sin alive and well in their hearts, set to make for themselves a great name and a great city and use their intellect and their strength and their might. They set out to build this tower And it's likely that it was in the form of these ancient ziggurats or what they were called, these these pyramid-like structures that would go up to that these pagan nations would build. And at the top of the tower or the ziggurat itself, where they would have these steps going up and at the top there would be a bed for their false god. And there they would also take different food and present different offerings so as to appease the god so the god wouldn't get mad at them. Again, how small... Of a God does it have to be that he needs food from humans? I'll recall Paul's words again as we read earlier. So we already know that sin survived the flood in the heart of Noah and his family. We already know that the human heart is bent toward wickedness because it is infected with sin. Here we see how that sinful 
sinfulness continues to spread and how the line of Seth devolves into the same condition because of their sin-stained hearts. See, time after time, sin will lead us away from God and towards self-glorification and exaltation rather than toward God-glorification and humility and repentance. The easiest way for us to examine ourselves is to stop and ask if we are moving toward further glorification of God or for their glorification of ourselves. Should I go here? Should I do this? Should I be with them? Should I do that? Is it God glorifying or self-exalting? As we continue reading in verse 5, And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. So we see here the, the people, the children of Noah, their families that have grown into clans, build this tower for the purpose of building it toward the sky where God supposedly dwells. And how small of a concept of God do you have to think that you can actually build something to reach him? Revealing their small view and, and their complete misunderstanding of God. And we see here as we read that God is aware of this activity as he is all things, and he steps down to look at their tower. One commentator noted, Yahweh must draw near, not because he is nearsighted, but because he dwells at such tremendous height, and their work is so tiny. See, Isaiah puts this into proper perspective for us in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 22, as he notes that God sits above the circle of the earth, and that he stretches out the heavens like a curtain, and he spreads them like a tent to dwell in. That God is so much bigger than we can imagine, and has given us his word that we might know him. Yet we shake our proverbial fists at him by building towers to glorify ourselves. So God looks at their work, judges rightly, that if allowed to continue with such sinful rebellion, there will be no end to how they will band together to glorify themselves. So in an act of grace, he judges them that they might realize the error of their ways and stop their rebellion. So he could have let them continue or could have simply judged them as he had judged the world. And when he saw the wickedness of the hearts before, he preserved Noah. And, and destroyed them in some other fashion. But in an act of grace, he separates their language. He spreads them out so that they may know him and stop their sinfulness. Genesis shows us God's consistent response to sin. God responds to sin with consistency, justice, and purposes all of it for his glory. So we must know in our time that a day is coming when God will respond to our sin and the sins of the world with justice because he responds consistently. And on that day, none of us will be able to stand before him on our own. 
Only those who possess a heart that has been washed clean by the blood of Christ and regenerated to new life will be able to stand. So some may ask, well, how can I know if I've been made new? Have you professed your faith in Jesus, confessed him as Lord, and repented of sin? Are you living in conviction of your own sin or simply reveling in your own way of life? And if you find that the latter is a better description for yourself, then my urge to you is to respond to God's drawing you today. So we see God separates them so that they may know him. He creates cultures and languages and nations, spreading them out, purposing his judgment of their sin, purposing their sin for his greater glory. For the moment that comes here, when God's judgment is evident and their foolishness is folly, in an instant, no one can understand each other. And then it says that the Lord spread them over the earth. So the different languages, nationalities, cultures that we see today were created by God as an act of grace to halt man's collective sinfulness. And it's all done to the praise of his glory. And how do we know this? Moses told us so in the genealogies. Moses told us that this was God's direction and guidance, that he saw this happening. He planned it according to his purposes and his glory. So as we approach verse 10 of chapter 11, we see that we've come full circle this morning as we once again find ourselves looking at a genealogy. And see, this is the continuation of the genealogy which sandwiches the story of the Tower of Babel. However, this genealogy is not simply a continuation of the last one, but once again shows us the purpose and power and the providence of God. Look at verse 10, chapter 11. These are the generations of Shem. When Shem was 100 years old, he fathered Arpachshad two years after the flood. So as we work our way through the genealogy here, we who are on this side of the cross can see where God is ultimately leading this story. As we read at the end of Shem's descendants, if you'll look at verse 26. When Terah had lived 70 years, he fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. So here we're introduced to a man named Abram, who we better know as Abraham, as that is what he would come to be called. But first, he was Abram, son of Terah, son of Nahor, son of Sarag, son of Ru, son of Peleg, son of Eber, son of Shelah, son of Arpachshad, son of Shem, son of Noah, who came from the line of Seth, who of course came from Adam and Eve. And this is the story which God is weaving for us, showing us his providence and grace. What a providential and sovereign God we serve. See, when I have the blessing of being asked to do someone's funeral, I always tell the crowd that one of my favorite parts of a funeral, and I always point out that I realize that it's a little bit ironic to say the favorite part of a funeral. I realize that. But one of my favorite parts of a funeral is the obituary. And I don't do this simply as lip service. I truly mean it because in the obituary, we see the evidence of God's faithfulness to use one life to reach and affect many. In the obituary, we have who is remaining, who survived, who preceded them in death. 
in the genealogies of the Bible, we see God's good and gracious plans to save mankind from their sin, and we can trace it all the way back to the beginning. So this concludes the first 11 chapters of Genesis, which are referred to as the primeval narratives. Next week, in examining chapter 12, we'll begin what are known as the patriarchal narratives. And there we will see God's clear and decisive action against sin to preserve for himself a people that would be declared righteous by his doing and declare his name among the nations, the nations which he created for the praise of his glory and grace. Let's pray. And we thank you for your providence. We thank you for your working all things together according to your purposes, your glory, and we know that that will be our good. So God, as we examine what is for many of us a familiar story, widely known, help us also to see it in the light of these genealogies of you showing your grace and your faithfulness to preserve your promise that you would provide one from the woman who would crush the head of the serpent and to show us your providence, your plans, your purposes. And for us to know and find confidence in that, that you are purposing all things that are happening in our life for your glory and our good. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.